Chapter Four, Part Three of the Pit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. The day had been sunshiny, warm even, but since nine o'clock the weather had changed for the worse, and by now a heavy rain was falling. Mrs. Cressler begged the two sisters and Mrs. Wessels to stay at her house overnight, but Laura refused. Jadwin was suggesting to Cressler the appropriateness of having the coupé brought round to take the sisters home, when Corthell came up to Laura. "'I sent for a couple of hansoms long since,' he said. "'They are waiting outside now.' And that seemed to settle the question. For all Jadwin's perseverance, the artist seemed, for this time at least, to have the better of the situation. As the goodbyes were being said at the front door, Page remarked to Landry, "'You had better go with us as far as the house, so that you can take one of our umbrellas. You can get in without Wes and me. There's plenty of room. You can't go home in this storm without an umbrella.' Landry at first refused haughtily. He might be too poor to parade a lot of handsome cabs around, but he was too proud, to say the least, to ride in them when someone else paid. Page scolded him roundly. What next? The idea he was not to be so completely silly. She didn't propose to have the responsibility of his catching pneumonia just for the sake of a quibble. Some people, she declared, never seem to be able to find out that they are grown up. Very well, he announced. I'll go if I can tip the driver a dollar. Page compressed her lips. The man that can afford dollar tips, she said, can afford to hire the cab in the first place. Seventy-five cents, then, he declared resolutely. Not a cent less. I should feel humiliated by any less. Will you please take me down to the cab, Landry Court, she cried, and without further comment Landry obeyed. Now, Miss Dearborn, if you are ready exclaimed Corthell as he came up. He held the umbrella over her head, allowing his shoulders to get the drippings. They cried good-bye again all around, and the artist guided her down the slippery steps. He handed her carefully into the hansom, and following, drew down the glasses. Laura settled herself comfortably far back in her corner, adjusting her skirts and murmuring, "'Such a wet night!' Who would have thought it was going to rain? I was afraid you were not coming at first, she added. At dinner, Mrs. Cressler said you had an important committee meeting, something to do with the Art Institute. The award of prizes, was that it? Oh, yes, he answered indifferently. Something of the sort was on. I suppose it was important for the Institute. But for me, there is only one thing of importance nowadays. He spoke with a studied carelessness, as though announcing a fact that Laura must know already. And that is to be near you. It is astonishing. You have no idea of it, how I have ordered my whole life according to that idea. As though you expected me to believe that, she answered. In her other lovers, she knew her words would have provoked vehement protestation but for her it was part of the charm of Corthell's attitude that he never did or said the expected, the ordinary. Just now he seemed more interested in the effect of his love for Laura upon himself than in the matter of her reception of it. "'It is curious,' he continued. "'I am no longer a boy. I have no enthusiasms. I have known many women. 
and I have seen enough of what the crowd calls love to know how futile it is, how empty, a vanity of vanities. I had imagined that the poets were wrong, or idealists, seeing the things that uh, should be rather than the things that were, and then suddenly he drew in a deep breath. This happiness, and to me, and the miracle, the wonderful, is here, all at once, in my heart, in my very hand, like a mysterious, beautiful exotic. The poets are wrong, he added. They have not been idealists enough. I wish... Ah, well, never mind. What is it you wish? she asked, as he broke off suddenly. Laura knew even before she spoke that it would have been better not to have prompted him to continue. Intuitively she had something more than a suspicion that he had led her on to say these very words, and in admitting that she cared to have the conversation proceed upon this footing, she realized that she was shearing toward unequivocal coquetry. She saw the false move now, knew that she had lowered her guard. On all accounts it would have been more dignified to have shown only a mild interest in what Corthell wished. She realized that once more she had acted upon impulse, and she even found time to wonder again how it was that when with this man her impulses and not her reason prevailed so often. With Landry, or with Curtis Jadwin, she was always calm, tranquilly, self-possessed. But Corthold seemed able to reach all that was impetuous, all that was unreasoned in her nature. To Landry she was more than anything else an older sister, indulgent, kind-hearted. With Jadwin she found that all the serious, all the sincere, earnest side of her character was apt to come to the front. But Corthel stirred troublous, unknown deeps in her, certain undefined trends of recklessness. And for so long as he held her within his influence she could not forget her sex a single instant. It dismayed her to have this strange personality of hers, this other headstrong, impetuous self, discovered to her. She hardly recognized it. It made her a little afraid, and yet, wonder of wonders, she could not altogether dislike it. There was a certain fascination in resigning herself for little instants to the dominion of this daring stranger that was yet herself. Meanwhile, Corthell had answered her. "'I wish,' he said, "'I wish you could say something, I hardly know what, something to me. So little would be so much.' "'But what can I say?' she protested. "'I don't know. I, What can I say?' "'It must be yes or no for me,' he broke out. "'I can't go on this way.' "'But why not? Why not?' exclaimed Laura. "'Why must we terminate anything?' Why not let things go on just as they are? We are quite happy as we are. There's never been a time in my life when I've been happier than this last three or four months. I don't want to change anything. Ah, here we are. The hansom drew up in front of the house. Aunt Wes and Paige were already inside. The maid stood in the vestibule in the light that streamed from the half-open front door, an umbrella in her hand and as Laura alighted she heard Paige's voice calling from the front hall that the others had umbrellas, that the maid was not to wait. The hansom splashed away, and Corthell and Laura mounted the steps of the house. "'Won't you come in?' 
she said. There is a fire in the library. But he said no, and for a few seconds they stood under the vestibule light, talking. Then Corthell, drawing off his right-hand glove, said, I suppose that I have my answer. You do not wish for a change, I understand. You wish to say by that that you do not love me. If you did love me as I love you, you would wish for just that, a change. You would be as eager as I for that wonderful, wonderful change that makes a new heaven and a new earth. This time Laura did not answer. There was a moment's silence. Then Corthell said, Do uh, you know, I, I think I shall go away. Go away? Yes, to New York, possibly to Paris. There is a new method of fusing glass that I promised myself long ago I would look into. I don't know that it interests me very much now, but I think I had better go. At once, within the week. There's not much heart in it, but it seems under the circumstances to be appropriate. He held out his bared hand. Laura saw that he was smiling. "'Well, Miss Dearborn, good-bye.' "'But why should you go?' she cried distressfully. "'How perfectly—' "'I don't go,' she exclaimed, then in desperate haste added, "'It would be absolutely foolish.' "'Shall I stay?' he urged. "'Do you tell me to stay?' "'Of course I do,' she answered. "'It would break up the play you're going. "'It would spoil my part. "'You play opposite me, you know. "'Please stay.' "'Shall I stay?' he answered, "'for the sake of your part. "'There is no one else you would rather have.' He was smiling straight into her eyes, and she guessed what he meant. She smiled back at him, and the spirit of daring, never more awake in her, replied as she caught his eye, "'There is no one else I would rather have.' Corthell caught her hand of a sudden. "'Laura!' he cried. Let us end this fencing and quibbling once and for all. Dear, dear girl, I love you with all the strength of all the good in me. Let me be the best a man can be to the woman he loves. Laura flashed a smile at him. If you can make me love you enough, she answered. And you think I can? he exclaimed. You have my permission to try, she said. She hoped fervently that now, without further words, he would leave her. It seemed to her that it would be the most delicate chivalry on his part, having won this much, to push his advantage no further. She waited anxiously for his next words. She began to fear that she had trusted too much upon her assurance of his tact. Corthell held out his hand again. "'It is good-night, then, not good-bye.' "'It is good-night,' said Laura." With the words he was gone, and Laura, entering the house, shut the door behind her with a long breath of satisfaction. Page and Landry were still in the library. Laura joined them, and for a few moments the three stood before the fireplace talking about the play. Page, at length, at the first opportunity, excused herself and went to bed. She made a great show of leaving Landry and Laura alone, and managed to convey the impression that she understood they were anxious to be rid of her. "'Only remember,' she remarked to Laura severely, "'to lock up and turn out the hall gas. Annie has gone to bed long ago.' "'I must dash along, too,' declared Landry when Paige was gone. 
He buttoned his coat around his neck, and Laura followed him out into the hall and found an umbrella for him. "'You were beautiful tonight,' he said as he stood with his hand on the doorknob. "'Beautiful. I could not keep my eyes off you, and I could not listen to anybody but you. And now,' he declared solemnly, "'I will see your eyes and hear your voice all the rest of the night. I want to explain,' he added, "'about those hansoms.' about coming home with Miss Page and Mrs. Wessels. Mr. Corthell, those were his hansoms, of course, but I wanted an umbrella, and I gave the driver seventy-five cents. Well, of course, of course, said Laura, not quite divining what he was driving at. I don't want you to think that I would be willing to put myself under obligations to anybody. Oh, of course, Landry, I understand. He thrilled at once. Ah, he cried, you don't know what it means to me to look into the eyes of a woman who really understands. Laura stared, wondering just what she had said. Will you turn this hall light out for me, Landry? she asked. I never can reach. He left the front door open and extinguished the jet in its dull red globe. Promptly they were involved in darkness. Good night, she said. Isn't it dark? He stretched out his hand to take hers, but instead his groping fingers touched her waist. Suddenly Laura felt his arm clasp her. Then all at once, before she had time to so much as think of resistance, he had put both arms around her and kissed her squarely on her cheek. Then the front door closed, and she was left abruptly alone, breathless, stunned, staring wide-eyed into the darkness. Her first sensation was uh, one merely of amazement. She put her hand quickly to her cheek, uh, first the palm and then the back, murmuring confusedly, What? Why? Why? Then she whirled about and ran up the stairs, her silks clashing and fluttering about her as she fled, gained her own room and swung the door violently shut behind her. She turned up the lowered gas, and, without wondering why, faced her mirror at once, studying her reflection and watching her hand as it all but scoured the offended cheek. Then, suddenly, with an upward, uplifting rush, her anger surged within her. She, Laura, Miss Dearborn, who loved no man, who never conceded, never capitulated, whose grand manner was a thing proverbial, in all her pitch of pride, in her own home, her own fortress, had been kissed like a schoolgirl, like a chambermaid, in the dark, in a corner. And by great heavens, Landry Court, the boy whom she fancied she held in such subjection, such profound respect, Landry Court had dared, had dared to kiss her, to offer her this wretchedly commonplace and petty affront, degrading her to the level of a pretty waitress, making her ridiculous. She stood rigid, drawn to her full height, in the center of her bedroom, her fists tense at her sides, her breath short, her eyes flashing, her face aflame. From time to time her words, half-smothered, burst from her. What does she think I am? How dared he? How dared he? All that she could say, any condemnation she could formulate only made her position the more absurd, the more humiliating. It had all been said before by generations of shop-girls, school-girls, and servants, in whose company the affront had ranged her. 
Landry was to be told in effect that he was never to presume to seek her acquaintance again. Just as the enraged hussy of the street corners and Sunday picnics shouted that the offender should never dare speak to her again as long as he lived, never before had she been subjected to this kind of indignity, and simultaneously with the assurance she could hear the shrill voice of the drab of the public balls proclaiming that she had never been kissed in all her life before. Of all slights, of all insults, it was the one that robbed her of the very dignity she should assume to rebuke it. The more vehemently she resented it, the more laughable became the whole affair. But she would resent it. She would resent it. And Landry Court should be driven to acknowledge that the sorriest day of his life was the one on which he had forgotten the respect in which he had pretended to hold her. He had deceived her then all along, because she had foolishly relaxed a little toward him, permitted a certain intimacy. This was how he abused it. Well, it would teach her a lesson. Men were like that. She might have known it would come to this. Willfully they chose to misunderstand, to take advantage of her frankness, her good nature, her good comradeship. She had been foolish all along, flirting, Yes, that was the word for it, flirting with Landry and Corthell and Jadwin. No doubt they all compared notes about her. Perhaps they had bet on who first should kiss her. Or at least there was not one of them who would not kiss her if she gave him a chance. But if she in any way had been to blame for what Landry had done, she would atone for it. She had made herself too cheap. She had found amusement in encouraging these men, in equivocating, in coquetting with them. Now it was time to end the whole business, to send each one of them to the right about with an unequivocal definite word. She was a good girl, she told herself. She was in her heart, sincere. She was above the inexpensive diversion of flirting. She had started wrong in her new life, and it was time, high time, to begin over again, with a clean page to show these men that they dared not presume to take liberties with so much as the tip of her little finger. So great was her agitation, so eager her desire to act upon her resolve, that she could not wait till morning. It was a physical impossibility for her to remain under what she chose to believe suspicion another hour. If there was any remotest chance that her three lovers had permitted themselves to misunderstand her, they were to be corrected at once, were to be shown their place, and that without mercy. She called for the maid, Annie, whose husband was the janitor of the house and who slept in the top story. "'If Henry hasn't gone to bed,' said Laura, "'tell him to wait up until I call him or to sleep with his clothes on. There's something I want him to do for me, something important.' It was close upon midnight." Laura turned back into her room, removed her hat and veil, and tossed them with her coat upon the bed. She lit another burner of the chandelier, and drew a chair to her writing-desk between the windows. Her first note was to Landry Court. She wrote it almost with a single spurt of the pen, and dated it carefully, so that he might know it had been written immediately after he had left. Thus it ran. Please do not try to see me again at any time or under any circumstances. I want you to understand very clearly that I do not wish to continue our acquaintance. 
Her letter to Corthell was more difficult, and it was not until she had rewritten it uh, two or three times that it read to her satisfaction. My dear Mr. Corthell, so it was worded, you asked me tonight that our fencing and quibbling be brought to an end. I quite agree with you that it is desirable. I spoke as I did before you left upon an impulse that I shall never cease to regret. I do not wish you to misunderstand me, nor to misinterpret my attitude in any way. You asked me to be your wife, and very foolishly and wrongly, I gave you, intentionally, an answer which might easily be construed into an encouragement. Understand now that I do not wish you to try to make me love you. I would find it extremely distasteful, and, believe me, it would be quite hopeless. I do not now, and never shall care for you as I should care if I were to be your wife. I beseech you that you will not in any manner refer again to this subject. It would only distress and pain me. Cordially yours, Laura Dearborn. The letter to Curtis Jadwin was almost to the same effect, but she found the writing of it easier than the others. In addressing him, she felt herself grow a little more serious, a little more dignified and calm. It ran as follows. My dear Mr. Jadwin, when you asked me to become your wife this evening, you deserved a straightforward answer, and instead I replied in a spirit of capriciousness and disingenuousness which I now earnestly regret, and which ask you to pardon and to ignore. I allowed myself to tell you that you might find encouragement in my foolishly spoken words. I am deeply sorry that I should have so forgotten what was due to my own self-respect and to your sincerity. If I have permitted myself to convey to you the impression that I would ever be willing to be your wife, let me hasten to correct it. Whatever I said to you this evening I must answer now, as I should have answered then, truthfully and unhesitatingly, no. This, I insist, must be the last word between us upon this unfortunate subject, if we are to continue as I hope very good friends. Cordially yours, Laura Dearborn. She sealed, stamped, and directed the three envelopes, and glanced at the little leather-cased travelling clock that stood on the top of her desk. It was nearly two. "'I could not sleep, I could not sleep,' she murmured, "'if I did not know they were on the way.' In answer to the bell, Henry appeared, and Laura gave him the letters, with orders to mail them at once in the nearest box. When it was all over, she sat down again at her desk, and, leaning an elbow upon it, covered her eyes with her hand for a long moment. She felt suddenly very tired, and when at last she lowered her hand, her fingers were wet. But in the end she grew calmer. She felt that, at all events, she had vindicated herself that her life would begin again tomorrow with a clean page. And when at length she fell asleep, it was to the dreamless unconsciousness of an almost tranquil mind. She slept late the next morning and breakfasted in bed between ten and eleven. Then, as the last vibrations of last night's commotion died away, a very natural curiosity began to assert itself. She wondered how each of the three men would take it. 
In spite of herself, she could not keep from wishing that she could be by when they read their dismissals. Toward the early part of the afternoon, while Laura was in the library reading Queen's Gardens, the special delivery brought Landry Court's reply. It was one roulade of incoherence, even in places blistered with tears. Landry protested, implored, debased himself to the very dust. His letter bristled with exclamation points, and ended with a prolonged wail of distress and despair. Quietly, and with a certain merciless sense of pacification, Laura deliberately reduced the letter to strips, burned it upon the hearth, and went back to her Ruskin. A little later, the afternoon being fine, she determined to ride out to Lincoln Park, not fifteen minutes from her home, to take a little walk there and to see how many new buds were out. As she was leaving, Annie gave into her hands a pasteboard box, just brought to the house by a messenger boy. The box was full of Jacqueminot roses, to the stems of which a note from Corthell was tied. He wrote but a single line. So it should have been good-bye after all. Laura had Annie put the roses in Paige's room. Tell Paige she can have them. I don't want them. She can wear them to the dance tonight, she said. While to herself, she added, the little buds in the park will be prettier. She was gone from the house over two hours, for she had elected to walk all the way home. She came back flushed and buoyant from her exercise, her cheeks cool with the lake breeze, a young maple leaf in one of the rivers of her coat. Annie let her in, murmuring, A gentleman called just after you went out. I told him you were not at home, but he said he would wait. He is in the library now. Who is he? Did he give his name? demanded Laura. The maid handed her Curtis Jadwin's card. End of chapter 4